VOA News. This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Good evening and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... I think the biggest problem is the inability of African government to hold these Chinese companies to account. That's Claude Kabemba, executive director of the think tank Southern Africa Resource Watch, on human rights allegations linked to Chinese investment on the continent. Details coming up. Also, Guinea's military government has announced plans to prosecute ousted President Alpha Condi and 26 of his former officials. These stories and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story. Guinea's military government this week announced plans to prosecute ousted President Alpha Condi and 26 of his former officials for murder, rape, kidnapping and other alleged crimes. Guinea's coup leader also proposed a three-year transition back to civilian rule. Anika Hammerschlag speaks to analysts about the significance of the charges in this report from Dakar, Senegal. In 2010, Alpha Conde became Guinea's first democratically elected president, but accusations of corruption and authoritarian behavior mounted throughout his time in office. Last September, after winning what critics said was an illegal third term, Conde was overthrown in a military coup. Conde had altered the constitution to allow himself to run for a third term, sparking violent protests and a deadly crackdown by police. The charges against Conde and his government were issued in response to a complaint filed by the National Front for the Defense of the Constitution, the group that had led the protests. Gilles Yabi is the director of the West Africa Citizen Think Tank in Dakar. He said it is important the proceedings shed light on Conde's regime, but is concerned they risk being perceived as a political tool. He says that when it comes to the fight against impunity, for it to be credible, it must not raise suspicion of political manipulation. Given the current context in Guinea, he says, that could be difficult. The other officials facing charges include former security officers, speakers of parliament, and a prime minister. Barkaba is a West Africa political science researcher. He says it is a bold move by the junta that he wonders if they'll have enough time and political legitimacy to conduct the proceedings. Those facing charges are well respected and thought to be innocent, he says, and they will have a right to a defense. Leaders of the West Africa bloc, ECOWAS, had called on Guinea's military government to announce an acceptable plan to transition to civilian rule by April 25th or face immediate sanctions. Guinea's interim president, Colonel Mamadi Dumbuya, a former special forces commander, missed the deadline. On Saturday, he said he was considering a transition period of more than three years. ECOWAS defense leaders are meeting today to discuss security in the Sahel and could announce sanctions against Guinea's military government. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. 
jihadist groups active in Burkina Faso staged a double ambush, killing seven soldiers and scores of civilians in the country's north while suffering large losses of their own. The first attack near the town of Soli yesterday led to the deaths of two soldiers and four civilian volunteers helping the army, while five paramilitary troops were killed in another raid the same day at another town, Oanobi according to the army's statement today. Nine people were wounded, it said, adding that bodies of some 20 attackers were found during clean-up operations. Weapons, ammunition, transport and communication equipment were also seized or destroyed. Jihadist groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group, according to the French news agency AFP, have regularly carried out attacks in northern and eastern Burkina Faso since 2015, killing more than 2,000 people and displacing almost 2 million. Unrest linked to jihadist groups also plagues Burkina Faso's West African neighbors Mali and Niger. The three landlocked countries are ranked among the poorest in the world. A viral video of a Chinese employer whipping a bound employee is sparking outrage across the continent. A Rwandan court last month made headlines when it sentenced the Chinese national and mine manager, Sun Su Jun, to 20 years in jail for his actions. Experts say abuse of local workers by Chinese bosses is not uncommon in Africa. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. The video of a Chinese mine manager whipping a tied-up employee in Rwanda shows a dark side of the Chinese presence in Africa in recent years as part of Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative to invest, build infrastructure and trade across continents. After the Rwanda case, the Chinese embassy in Kigali warned compatriots to abide by local laws and regulations. And last week, its counterpart in Namibia published guidelines on its WeChat page advising Chinese living and working in the southern African country on how to handle wage disputes with local workers. The embassy also warned Chinese bosses to avoid intimidating or coercing employees. Still, a report last year by the United Kingdom-based Business and Human Rights Resource Center found 181 human rights allegations linked to Chinese investment had been recorded across the continent between 2013 and 2020. Claude Kabemba, executive director of the think tank Southern Africa Resource Watch, says Chinese companies operating in the extractive industries are particularly problematic, notably in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The behavior of Chinese mining companies, they very seldom respect the rights of mine workers. In Zimbabwe too, Chinese employers' abuse of local workers has been recorded. One of the most egregious examples was in 2020, when a Chinese employer at a mine in the town of Gweru shot and seriously injured two Zimbabwean workers after a wage dispute. The Chinese embassy in Harare said at the time it was an isolated incident. However, Shamiso Metisi, deputy director of the Zimbabwe Environmental Law Association, says the pattern of abuse by Chinese employers in Zimbabwe could stem from racism. We've recorded uh, some cases there where the Chinese uh, employers would treat Zimbabwean workers in a manner that is not befit of human beings. I think the problem is they see themselves as uh, superior. 
But Kabemba says African governments are also to blame because they're so desperate for China's direct investment. I think the biggest problem is the inability of African government to hold these Chinese companies to account. China has become a huge player on the continent thanks to Chinese President Xi Jinping's trademark Belt and Road Initiative. But abuses by Chinese companies and individuals in Africa are creating friction in the local communities, potentially jeopardizing relations. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. As the political crisis in Libya is continuing with Libyan Prime Minister-designate Fatihe Bashaga planning a meeting of his government in the coastal city of Sirte this Sunday, his rival, Abdelhamid Dabiba, is saying that the Tripoli government is the only legitimate government and it can only be replaced by an election. Blocking oil export was one weapon used to force Dabiba to step down, but Libya is losing $60 million daily and the U.S. Embassy in Libya has warned that a continued oil blockade will also lead to more frequent power outages. Wolfgang Poshta, a former Austrian military attaché in Libya, discussed Libya's oil politics with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi. This war in Ukraine makes ending the blockade of very high interest for the United States and Europe. However, this is not only about the Beba and Bashaga. This is also about the population of the Libyans living in the east and in the south. When Bashaga recently toured the oil crescent, and visited several cities, he said thereafter that he was shocked about the living conditions. He was shocked about the terrible living circumstances of the people living in the oil crescent. The oil crescent, where the oil is coming from, where Libya's wealth has its origin. I see three scenarios to end the blockade. The first one would be that Bashaga takes over power in Tripoli. The second one would be a mechanism for the transparent use of the oil revenues, as it is also urged by the United States Special Envoy in Orland. And the third one, and I would say that's the most likely one, that the local tribes would be at least temporarily appeased by some more money allocated to them by the Beba and his government of national unity. While this is the most likely option, it would not lead to a lasting stabilization. I need to stress, these blockades could easily become a starting point for the slowly drifting away of the east of Libya. And keeping the current oil shortages in mind, it would be probably much easier for the East to sell its oil right now than some years ago under the Altini government. As we talk right now, a tanker is filled up in Tobruk-Hariga and this tanker will head to China. But uh, with the closure of oil terminals, there is a danger that the tanks will explode because the oil is coming without being released. Actually, uh, in Suetina, they have opened up the terminal again for loading two tankers. You're right, there is the problem that in, depending on the quality and on the kind of oil, it is necessary to maintain the, the flow of oil until the pipelines are emptied. And this means that the tanks in, in Suetina are overfilled and there was a real threat that they could break. And this is the reason, as the local employees explained also to the LNA guys there, they need to, to fill at least two tankers to lessen the pressure. Otherwise, there would be a real risk that the tanks would break down and then there would be a huge oil spill. And this would certainly be a damage, which would be a problem also for the East in, in, in any sense. But what's also quite interesting is not all the terminals are closed. So for Tobruk-Hariga, where this Chinese tanker is, the status is currently not really clear. 
the local said that they are blockading the terminal. On the other side, they are loading ships. NRC did not announce force majeure over Tobruk Hariga, as it did about Rega Suetina. They did not announce force majeure over Sidra and uh, Raslanuf. So it's currently really just a part of the oil which is blocked, which means part of the revenues are blocked. So they have received 8 billion and the West is not really sincerely pushing the CBL just with nice words. Altogether, this means that the cards for Bashar are not the best. Would that represent potential smuggling of Libyan oil away from the company? This is this is already going on. Oil smuggling is going on, and then the main, other than, than towards Egypt and on the land border to the south, is through Malta. There is a, a bank to the northeast of Malta where the water is not very deep and which is used for anchoring ships. And at these banks northeast of Malta, they are offloading uh, Libyan smaller tank ships and loading towards other larger, not really super tankers, towards larger ships. And from there, they are smuggling the oil, the crude oil to Italy and to other European countries. But the total amount that could be smuggled more or less officially with the support of the, of a regional government in the East, I don't think this would be enough. I think they would need to seek a deal with China that they are taking and buying their oil. I would not rule it out. Maybe even with India. India suffers quite heavily from the high oil prices right now. And India has always refused to break with Russia because they need Russian backing against China and against Pakistan. The vast majority of the weapons of the Indian armed forces are from Russia. If they don't get spares, they have a problem. So I really think, as I said, the prospects for the East, if they establish a regional government to sell oil, are by far better than they were some years ago. That was Wolfgang Postai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA's Mohamed El-Shinawi. The leader of South Africa's main opposition party is warning Africans to brace for the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Democratic Alliance's John Steinhausen ended his six-day fact-finding mission to Ukraine Thursday. Reporter Vicky Stark spoke to him via Zoom before he left Kiev. While South Africa's African National Congress-led government has refused to condemn Russia's war on Ukraine, preferring to take a neutral stance and calling for mediation, the Democratic Alliance Party's John Stienhuisen isn't mincing his words. He says seeing the destruction of the towns on the outskirts of the Ukrainian capital Kiev was heartbreaking. Stienhuisen says besides showing Ukraine citizens that there are South Africans who care, he also went there to build networks which could help him make informed decisions. To put in perspective, uh, one out of every three slices of bread consumed in Africa and the Middle East comes from uh, grain uh, in this region. Uh, Cooking oil, um, they're one of the number one producers of cooking oil. Uh, and fertilizers, uh, which are essential for growing of crops in our own country. Uh, There's been a 300% increase in fertilizer costs in South Africa, which is going to have a huge impact on domestic uh, food security as well. And that's obviously also tied in with rising fuel prices as a result of the instability in the region. The leader of the Democratic Alliance says Africa is particularly vulnerable because of the high levels of poverty. There are 30 million South Africans that live um, below the poverty line, and that's obviously uh, exacerbated by a uh, almost 50% unemployment rate. Not everyone was pleased with Stienhuisen's visit. Critics said he seemed more interested in far-off conflicts than those happening in South Africa and the rest of the continent. Well, I would say that that uh, criticisms are frankly uh, a little bit childish. 
first of all, I have been to conflicts in Africa. I've spent uh, some time last year in Somaliland. Um, I've been to Mozambique. Ukraine's ambassador to South Africa, Lubov Abrabitova, welcomed Stian Hazen's visit. I think it is important from Ukrainian point of view to receive a message that uh, some South African people are supporting Ukraine. It will also give some impetus to uh, other political parties, not only in South Africa, but uh, in Africa in general, to have a dialogue uh, with Ukraine. When asked whether she would like to see South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa visit, she said, of course, yes, and added that during a recent telephone conversation with her president, President Ramaphosa said he would visit. I believe that uh, now this uh, visit will happen uh, as soon as the security situation will allow. South Africa's Department of International Relations says it was not commenting on Stienhazen's visit to Ukraine at this time. Question sent to the spokesperson for the ruling African National Congress, Pule Mabe, about Stienhazen's allegation that the ANC-led government is not neutral, but siding with Russia, were not answered. Neither were several phone calls to Mabe. Vicky Stark, VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Nigeria is hosting international filmmakers who have converged on Abuja for the 12th edition of the Zuma Film Festival. Organizers say the event, which ends on Saturday, is aimed at making Abuja an investment destination. Reporter Mona Chichuks from Abuja, Nigeria, who is attending the event, tells us more. The Zuma Film Festival attracts film practitioners to network with their counterparts across the continent. The 2022 edition, organized by the Nigeria Film Corporation in collaboration with the Federal Capital Territory Administration, kicked off in Abuja on May 1st. Dr. Chidia Madweke is the executive director of the Nigeria Film Corporation and chairman of the Central Planning Committee of the event. He spoke on the theme of this year's festival, Show the Money. We want to emphasize the fact that um, people can be well creators by investing more in the creative industry. That is why the theme. And uh, part of the annual lecture will be as to what uh, the benefit of uh, turning Abuja into a filming location. Madwekwe revealed that the 2022 Zuma Film Festival herads a total transformation of the film, cinema, and tourism activities of the country. There is greater interest, participation, an investment by government of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. And that has resulted to what you see today, like um, cross-border presence from South Africa, from Burkina Faso, from Kenya, Israel, and other countries. That is with a view to grow the film festival in Abuja to global standard. Since its inception in 1999 and its rebranding in 2017 as Nigeria's foremost and international film festival, no efforts have been spared to ensure that the objectives of the event are achieved. Filmmakers across the world attending the week-long celebration express readiness to use the festival to broaden their creativity as filmmakers. Azubike Erinowa is a Nigerian filmmaker based in Germany whose film, Angela, won top selection to open the 2022 Zuma Film Festival. 
He offers a summary of his movie. It is a story of young people and relationships and uh, expectations, but all in comedy format. It is an unusual way of telling stories. That's why it features in the film festival. So the film is a project initiated from the Institute of Strategic and Development Communication, ISDEFCOM, Nasrawa State University. An international filmmaker from Burkina Faso, Apolline Touare, notes that filmmakers in Francophone countries are willing to merge with Nigerian filmmakers to learn the tools of making movies that are less expensive and easier to produce. We Francophone have another way of making film, which is really heavy, which has required a lot of money and it takes a lot of time. So in that sense, um, we are not able to make film as fast as Nigeria. The 12th edition of the Zuma Film Festival ends on Saturday. It features the Nigeria Film Corporation's annual film lecture, masterclasses, training for emerging filmmakers, seminars on the film business, exhibitions by foreign embassies in Nigeria, and awards. For VOA News, Munachi Chooks from Abuja, Nigeria. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This year is likely to be the most food insecure year on record globally, according to the United Nations. Much of the suffering is caused by conflict, said U.S. representative to the U.N. Economic and Social Council, Lisa Carty. More and more belligerents are intentionally destroying farms or blocking trade routes with the express purpose of causing people to starve. Russia is using these tactics as part of its war on Ukraine, and the repercussions are already being felt by the world's most vulnerable, said Ambassador Carty. Ukraine is the world's fifth largest exporter of wheat and the second largest exporter of sunflower oil. Russia has disrupted these staple crops by bombing civilian infrastructure, placing landmines in Ukrainian soil, and even deliberately and repeatedly damaging Ukrainian grain storage facilities six by our latest count. And Russia's blockade of Ukrainian ports is stopping what food Ukraine has left from being exported to other countries in dire need. It is not surprising that Russia's war of choice is having a devastating impact on food systems at every level, from global to local, and the consequences will be dire. Regions that are already food insecure are now more likely to tip into catastrophic famine, starvation and death as food prices rise. In Yemen, the number of people facing famine is projected to increase five-fold by June. And that was a projection before Russia's war of choice began to affect food prices. In Ethiopia, as many as 9 million people face severe food insecurity. In Tigray specifically, more than 90% of people need aid. In South Sudan, conflict has driven two famines in the last five years, and analysts are warning another one could occur in 2022. And in Syria, about 12 million people are experiencing acute food insecurity. These crises are not inevitable. In fact, we have seen how taking early and anticipatory action has helped prevent famine, said Ambassador Carty. For our part, the United States will continue to deliver life-saving assistance through USAID and Feed the Future. We will continue to be the single largest country donor to the World Food Program and the Food and Agriculture Organization, she said.
We can save lives if we act early, before the worst crisis impacts are felt. There can be no excuse for famine today. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, John Dryden, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all and it's happening right here Mondays through Fridays at 0905 